Hello and welcome to episode number 393 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcina. And we're coming to you in separate locations. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the college football playoff-bound Washington Huskies. Wow, okay. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the probably not playoff-bound Seattle Seahawks. (laughs) Probably not. We'll talk about those playoff odds later in the pod. But before we talk about the Huskies, because even when they're not playing, they still have the hammer. They also have a lot of this week's toasts. which. uh, We'll get right into because, again, I have not not successfully searched for Seattle's best IPA. Oh no! What uh, this is episode ninety three? That's I. Who who did you come up with this ninety? I was thinking is Bryce Fisher. Bryce Fisher. I want to say ninety two off the top of my head. Ninety two is what sounds more right to me, but that uh, is, I believe, we are both wrong. Okay, he was ninety four. Ninety. All right. Well, well, we'll toast to him in a couple weeks. And and then eventually I will say Kent Washington's own. Hopefully only one week. <laughs> I don't know what your plans are for the podcast next <laughs> week, but hopefully soon. Renton Washington's own. Bryce Fisher. Uh, the most notable number 93 in Seahawks history was Julius, Julius, John Randall. Julius Randall did not play for the Seahawks. <laughs> he's got that film. No, he would be like, a, I feel like he's probably, probably could be a pretty good football player, Julius Randall. Some would say that's how he's playing basketball already, but uh, no, John Randall. John Randall was number ninety-three. Yeah, all right. Not not his best days with the Seahawks, certainly. Did he retire as a Seahawk? Is he one of many great legends to retire as a Seahawk? It seems likely. Let me check that out. John John Randall's tenure on the Seahawks better known as a trivia question, <laughs> trivia answer. I mean, he. He did have a really good year here in 2001. He was a pro bowler in 2001, had 11 sacks, scored a touchdown on there a fumble recovery. All right, big man. Uh, and then did complete his career with the Seattle Seahawks in 2003. There we go. There you go. All right. A big toast this week. Is Trinity Valley Community College the same one that Sean Kemp went to? I believe it is, yes. Wow, John Randall and Sean Kemp? That is that is an unusual combo. And Nick Van Exel, Betty oh. Lennox. I did not know Betty Lennox. Shouts to B Money. Rock Cartwright wasn't he a Seahawk? Also, no, just a fun fantasy so. player for a little while. Sure. Uh, actually, a lot of very good players went to Trinity Valley Community College. Al Harris, who we saw on the sideline this weekend against the Seahawks. Yeah. Wow. All right. We learned something new today. Shouts to Trinity Valley. But uh, we've already toasted to the, to the Huskies winning the Pac-12 championship <sighs> against Oregon last Friday. Honestly, you know, they've really been trying me this last week. They've really been trying me in every single way. And I am unfazed. I am unfazed because of that W. They cannot get me right now, no matter how much they've been trying me. Are you counting the rain as part of they? And not oh, the, yeah. not yeah, OL yeah, rain, yeah. just the, the rain. No, 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 no. The rain is one of the things that's been trying me. <laughs> well, on top of that, congrats to Michael Penix Jr. on officially being named a finalist for the Heisman Trophy, the second 
Heisman finalist in UW program history, joining Steve Entman, who finished fourth in 1991. Wow. Okay. So it, it almost undoubtedly Penix number two betting odds, a distant number two. He's minus 900 last I saw uh, to win, but almost certainly will be the highest finishing player in the Heisman Trophy voting in University of Washington program history. Whether he wins or not, it's still an incredible feat. Oh, without question. Are, I mean, are you... we going to, before, before we talk about Texas, are we are we going to do a little bit more Husky talk, like just general overall, or should we do that at the end? I mean, we could do that either. Okay, because I just wanted to say right now, off the top, we'll probably talk about this in the year in review podcast as well. I think it's really, really impressive. I want to build up to a Bonix retire, bitch. But... <laughs> To do a whole thing and then build. It's only an emergency pod thing. But oh, I've got some feelings about Bonix still. And but, uh, I hope you listen to that if you if you haven't. But to come back, do the next year. You know, we were celebrating. It was about a year ago, right? That we were celebrating Michael Penix coming back. Right, the banquet. They all get together. He does the speech. He says he's coming back, and then one by one, basically everybody else in the team does it. And there are so many times that things are set up. And then it is such a flop. Like this could have been like a freaking like, you know, seven and four season, seven and five season, whatever. Like this could have been a like fine season for them to have had. But for everybody who have come back and to have actually followed through on what they talked about, I believe that the, the term was unfinished business a year ago. And to for now, there's still more business to be done. But Ultimately, win or lose in the college football playoffs, like the Huskies have finished that business. They won all those games at the end of last year. They beat Texas. They rode that wave. And to get to the college football playoff as the number two seed, what they accomplished is basically unlike anything that we've seen in our adult lifetimes. How about that? For for the Huskies, what it reminds me of the most is the last time that we saw a team with unfinished business was the Seahawks after that loss to the Falcons, where you're just like, how in the hell did that happen? And you're just like, it, you kept riding, you kept riding the wave from it. The Seahawks never went away that offseason. They got better. They added Michael Bennett. They added Cliff Averill. And then they won a Super Bowl. And that to me is what this Husky team feels like to actually have the momentum. There's other teams that have had that momentum. And then they went into the season with Tommy LaStella as their DH, right? It's happened so many times. There's been Let's other quarterbacks. Save, save that. That's coming. There have been other quarterbacks who've come back for that one last year, and you're like, it's finally happening. And then you get the burn your jersey. You get the burn your jersey. That's what I was telling Luca too, in fact. But I, I was like, I've been through moments where we were walking through the U Village and somebody yelled, burn your jersey about a Jake Locker jersey. I'm going to fucking that... appreciate. I, I agree. We should appreciate it. I believe that was... Uh... We were west of campus. We so were I can't... In, on campus. I said you. Did I say you village? I'm at the U district. Yeah. Okay. In, in the U district, we were over by like where the I think the law building's over there or whatever. It could um, have been Terry or Lander. It could have been one of those. Either no, that or further. it was. We were just past the uh, the Portage Bay. Yeah, it was right there past the Portage Bay. It's seared into my brain. In fact, the Bernier jersey that was like we're coming up on a decade. <laughs> How many years has that been? Oh, you are so what so year was that? Naive. Thirteen years. Wait, that was, that was thirteen years ago. Anyway, 
So to have done that, to have actually seen that through and made it to the playoff with this roster, like what Michael Penix has achieved, Kalen DeBoer, obviously the whole roster, like it it is extraordinarily impressive and it really is pretty unprecedented in the history of Seattle sports. The banquet was December 4th, 2022. Wow, we are a day past. As you're listening to this, we are 367 days since then, right? Yes. I thought you were saying as we recorded this. I thought you you were throwing no. a leap year, leap day in there. No. Because I know exactly when everybody's listening to this. <laughs> of course you do. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Locker, I think back to the Cody Pickett Heisman hype. Like Heisman. we've seen this, we've seen this go wrong a lot of times in UW program history. And to see it go again, whatever happens against Texas whatever happens in the college football playoff. So very right this time has been awesome to watch. And uh, so Penix joins favorite Jaden Daniels, Bo Nix and Marvin Harrison Jr. as finalists for the Heisman. They still are trying with Bo Nix. They really cannot. The they, the same, I mean, same, th- same they that are the weather. They are mm-hmm. trying me with Bo Nix. Like they he's want not to finish ahead of man. Penix. He's not going to finish ahead of Penix in the Heisman, but he's going to be in front of him on every single piece of marketing for it. He's going to be like front and center. What, what was the the award that Penix won or that Bonix won today? That's a great question. I did not know they, the Bonix won an award today. They want Bonix like the the royal they, the same people who put Alabama into the playoff. They want Bonix bad. Like that is their guy. They've been waiting for a Bonick story and it finally happened and then and then somebody squashed it for him somebody we just we literally we we set them up and we just set them a sail right like like they were out right past the east end zone they are off to sea for the rest of the year because Oregon what we left them with on Friday night was complete and utter irrelevance have fun playing Liberty Oregon have fun uh, he won the Campbell Trophy, which re- uh, rewards combined excellence in athletics, academic success, and exemplary leadership. Leadership, aka, <laughs> we know, we know who wins this award, huh. and we know who does not win this award. The two people who are going to finish ahead of him in the Heisman voting—they—they're they, not quite as good leaders as Bonix is. Huh. Uh, also, this week. We're wishing a farewell to UW product Terrence Ross, who announced his NBA retirement at age 32 after 11 seasons in the league, most recently with the Phoenix Suns last year. The Portland native was the number eight pick of the 2012 draft after two seasons at Washington, won the slam dunk contest as a rookie. The highlight of the Human Torches NBA career was scoring 51 points in January 2014. Terrence Ross, awesome Husky. I remember at the time, right, Marvin Williams and Terrence Ross, both from the same high school, I believe. Or no, Marvin Williams was from Bremerton. Where was Terrence Ross from? Wasn't there another player from his high school? There was. That young man's name was Terrence Jones. Terrence Jones. Did not make it. Did not that's, make it okay, 12, 11 that, seasons in the NBA. That's, that's what I was trying to say. So Terrence Jones and Terrence Ross both committed to UW, right? And we thought Terrence Ross was the consolation prize. Terrence Jones oh, yeah. goes to, he went to, Kentucky Duke or Kentucky and well, he going played to against UW in the Maui Invitational that year. I do believe that was one of my favorite Maui Invitationals of all time. Have we talked about this. 
No, I don't think so. We have not it, remembered a Maui Invitational. It snowed on like the first day of the Maui Invitational. It was the snowiest Thanksgiving basically we've ever had. That's and correct. So I, I was just sitting in this like super dark apartment while it was white outside and I couldn't go into the office. I remember it's one of those days like as, as it turns to November and it's just darkness and I didn't open the blinds and I would just like sit there playing NCA or not NCA 2K whatever 14 or something. And then the Huskies would come on and we pushed all of those really good teams so close. And I believe ended up losing. <laughs> uh, beat beat Virginia with Tony Bennett by 43 points in the opener, which was and the then night lost, the snow was it first Michigan off. State that they lost to? Kentucky was the semifinals. Uh, number eight at the time, Kentucky lost 74-67 to that. And then Michigan State was in the loser's bracket is the number two team in the country. Uh, lost 76-71 to them. Oh. That was a that, very fun value. That Michigan State team featured a young reserve named Draymond Green. There we go. But yeah, I mean, we kind of thought that Terrence Ross was the consolation prize with Terrence Jones. And then Terrence Jones, he was a top pick in the draft, wasn't he? He was a lottery pick, yeah. He Never to be heard it. from again. Oh, Terrence Jones was a. Uh, I don't he Terrence Ross went higher than Terrence Jones. I'm there we go. Sure. There's your consolation prize. I think it was the year after, but I think Terrence Jones was a one and done. No, he went two years as well. Uh, he was the 18th pick that year. Hmm. Hmm. So there you go. Hope you had a good time at Kentucky, Terrence Jones. Uh, but Terrence Ross was an aw- awesome Probably. Husky. And and an impressive NBA career. Like one of those players that just kept going in the NBA. And I don't know, you tell me if he was productive, but. Not not always great advanced stats for Terrence Ross. That's fine. Not always great advanced stats. This is this is often the case for UW alums. Okay, we've done the tests. We've talked about how excited we are about the Huskies. It's time to see the darkness, because it's time to talk about the Seattle Mariners. You lost one of your eleven to sixteen children, all sons. Weirdly. On Sunday, when the Mariners traded Jared Kelnick, Marco Gonzalez, and Evan White to the Atlanta Braves, uh, sending $4.5 million cash on August 1st for star- pitcher Jackson Coar and prospect Cole Phillips. Do you want to start us off with a take here? Oh, I didn't, I didn't write takes. Was I supposed to? No, no, not a, not a hot take, but just a, a take. A take in general? I know that what you're going to expect of me is to be so upset about this trade. Right. And I'm honestly not. I am honestly, I saw this and I felt so little emotion about it. It was actually kind of strange how little emotion I felt about this trade because I expect nothing more from the Seattle Mariners. This is precisely what I expect from this Mariners organization. And trading Jared Kellenick was kind of just part of the process for the Mariners overall. And they have pretty much systematically removed any strikeouts from the batting order, but also have removed many MLB caliber hitters. When you look around at that roster, the roster that had no holes last year, Tommy Lestella at DH going into the season. Now it's hard to find major league players on the roster, but that's the thing that I'm not upset about is I am, I am willing to, I, I think the Mariners ownership has not earned any of this, but I just don't want to judge it too harshly on December 5th. And I, I think it's still 
the offseason is an incomplete until we see it. And then we could be as harsh as possible in a month, in three weeks, whatever. But if they actually turn around, I, I saw one place, the name Cody Bellinger come up. If they actually turn around and find a player like that and sign a player like that, then I'll probably feel differently about the offseason. So I, I think there's a reality to Jared Kelenic that he's going to be an awesome brave. We will always like Jared Kelenic. And I think the Mariners organization just didn't really like Jared Kelenic that much. Seemed like he was pretty at odds with the organization overall. Fans, on the other hand, seriously love Jared Kelenic. And that has been what the Mariners have done this offseason, is one by one, they have gotten rid of players that Mariners fans love. And if, they are, if they're worried about money, they'd better start making some moves because there are not a lot of fans who are that excited about Mariners baseball at the moment. They might still have people who want to go into the pen and drink over the summer when it's sunny outside, but people who actually want to buy ticket packages, people who are excited and engaged with this team, the the cupboard is looking pretty bare and people have they've lost they've lost a lot of fans and they've also lost a lot of goodwill throughout Seattle. So, this is another one of those moves. At the same time, I'm willing to accept I'm willing to accept this as an incomplete because if they are able to go out make a trade for Randy Rosarina, sign Cody Bellinger, something like that. I am I am willing to give them the chance to do that. So this is largely a salary dump. They shed the $12 million salary for Marco Gonzalez, who probably projected out of the opening day rotation for the Mariners with their young arms and the way they stepped up last season. Although you wonder about pitching depth and we'll see how uh, Jackson Coart fits into that. Uh I mean, I, I think he will fit into it to some degree. Jerry DePoto told reporters at the MLB By having winter a pulse meetings, in an arm, like Jackson Carr, from everything that I've read, is one of the worst pit- pitchers in Major League Baseball. Did you he, read the fan graph story about the strength? has been one of the least effective pitchers. There's a difference between worst and least effective. I don't know that I quite buy that. Okay. Uh Jerry DePoto told reporters at the MLB winter meetings, our payroll is very likely to be higher than it was a year ago, but we needed to create flexibility if we wanted to do things could make us meaningfully better. Scott Service did more to say the quiet part out loud in his comments at the winter meetings, saying things shifted maybe a couple of weeks into the offseason on where we were headed and why we were headed there based on different circumstances that came up. Some of it was within our control, some of it's not within our control on how you're going to shape your team going forward. And this seems most likely based on, you know, Ryan Divish's analysis and reading between the lines, a reference to the impact of Root Sports getting moved to the premium tier on Comcast and the way that's affecting the Mariners' finances. Can you break down what that means exactly? So they get a subscriber fee from like, you know, this is the way that the cable sports bundle works you get a subscriber fee for the number of subscribers the number of subscribers on the ultimate tier is much lower than it is when you're just part of the standard cable package so the mariners are getting less money from comcast next year and then you know i don't know exactly how their deals with the blazers and kraken work out but you've constantly been touting these as like a sign of the mariners financial strength but the situation now is they may be on the hook for certain payments to those teams that are were based on the assumption that they were going to have X number of subscribers, and now you have a much smaller number. Do you have a sense of how that that contract works between Root Sports and Comcast? Like, why is Comcast able to do that? 
do they just have the wherewithal to do whatever they like with regards to those? I don't have a good sense of it, but I would say is that teams often do not have a lot of leverage in these situations. The most referenced example is uh, what I'm trying to figure out what the name of the channel is, but it's the one that the Rockies, not the Rockies, the the Nuggets and Avalanche are on on owned by Stan Kroenke in Denver. You can't watch them in Denver on you know without like uh on cable basically why because they want more money than the cable company is willing to pay them so they just aren't on the air there that sounds great for fans oh late capitalism always is uh, i i don't i don't really obviously like understand how these contracts work necessarily um it does seem like something if they're tied up like they're tied up in an agreement with comcast where they can't go separate from them what do you mean go separate from them? Like, can you individually subscribe to Root Sports on its own, similar to like, can they do the Apple deal or whatever, where you you could subscribe basically to these teams on your own, irrelevant of Comcast? So the scenario that teams have broached, the Jazz and Suns most notably in the NBA, is that you put your broadcasts on over-the-air TV and then because you have control over the broadcast, you sell streaming packages. So I think that's a possible outcome for the Mariners down the line. But, you know, that's that's not going to be in 2024, certainly. So, I mean, a team that already and, had... And the other thing is, did you just make a lot less money than, than you were making on these cable deals? And, and why is it that cable is not as interested in root sports? I mean, it's basically the Mariners, right? This is because this is cost. live sports. Because people were unsubscribing from cable because of the cost of cable. And so they, they did us a favor, as we talked about at the time, by reducing the price of regular Comcast subscriptions. And so they're saying it's less, but then they're not playing sub fee to root sports by saying that basically like the Comcast package or their or base is subscribers. Lower. I, so. I just I I mean this seems like a problem that the Mariners are going to have to figure out. Lowering payroll and being less competitive is not going to be the way to do that. And it, it seems to me like the things that are happening right now with regards to the Mariners and cable is they're being affected by something, right? Which is the the death of cable television, basically. In response to that, they're being like, well, we'll be less competitive which will then make the interest less in the Mariners overall. Then they'll spend less. Like, it's just a battle to go as low as possible, right? I and mean, I think, so the one thing I'll say is that, look, the Mariners aren't the only team dealing with this. We'll see to what degree it affects free agency in general. But that's, I think, why, you know, if you say, okay, but why couldn't we have Jared Kelnick still and the nice things? And the Mariners are like, because of because of this deal, basically, is why we what can't are, have the nice, the nice things. things. In, the the players they add with the flexibility they've created, and obviously it comes back to Mariners ownership not being willing to spend beyond not even beyond the point of profitability. Does John Stanton have the money? I mean, I don't know that John Stanton is like super wealthy by baseball owner standards, but yes. Like he obviously obviously has the cash. Yes. 
John Stanton's, John Stanton's net worth was estimated at $1.1 billion. Okay, John Stanton is fine. There's a reality to this that the, the only ways to make this felt is just not paying attention. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't even know if I have the root package with the Mariners. Ideally, I'd be able to watch the Mariners next year. You do I, have it because you have NFL Red Zone. We've talked about it. Okay. But like, I can, once the NFL season's over, I can just get rid of Red Zone. You know what I mean? And save the whatever per month. Like, I don't think we need to do that. We don't need to be talking about the Mariners. If the Mariners aren't going to compete to win baseball games, if what is a bigger priority to them is profits, most of the teams we're talking about, that's not the case, right? Husky football, we're talking about a fucking Brinks truck opening up for Kalen DeBoer. And granted, it's it's on the labor, the unpaid labor of student athletes for a very long time. But like even that's there's a, an inkling of that starting to change. Things are moving in a positive direction. NFL teams, the Seahawks are spending more or less as much as they can, right? All I mean, it's a little different teams, in capped sports, I would say. Sure, but like there's a reality that basically every other team we're talking about is doing more or less their best to try to win games and to be a competitive team. And the Mariners are not doing that. They are not playing. They are trying to, they are putting boundaries around themselves, salary cap boundaries or whatever around themselves that don't need to be there that other teams are not doing. And, you know, I'm not saying that the Mariners aren't trying to win, but they're trying to win at a point where their profits are still being maximized, if that makes sense. It just reminds me of, you know, well, the word maximized does not make sense. Have you been to maximize? Oh, it's a perfect word. <laughs> it's the most cromulent word, in fact. Uh, the Mariners are concerned with small amounts of profit and by, by their response to those small amounts of profit, right, is to make the team worse and punish the people of Seattle for even asking for something better and to condescend to the fans. It's just like, why are we paying attention? But, but, but I am willing to wait and see. I am willing to hear Jerry DePoto that if, if the payroll actually will be higher, to get the payroll to be higher, they will have to spend money because they've reduced the salaries so much at this point. Like they'll have to spend a probably significant amount of money. So if one of those players comes and the roster overall looks better, to me, the difference between winning and losing is probably not one Cody Bellinger, but I think it is a lot of players at this point. But if the, if the payroll is actually higher and because of this flexibility, then I'm willing to be on board. I think if it wasn't this trade, they were going to trade Jared Kilnick somewhere else. Because as you said, because you stole my take after I told you this on the phone, they've systematically gotten rid of all the high strikeout players on the roster. I no, I had this take too. Oh, I brought cool. up the take and you were like, "That's yeah, that's my take. For what no, it's worth. I, I originated it. I, I looked it up for you earlier. Five... Of the six AL playoff teams were below the league average in strikeout rate, meaning they struck out less often than league average. Uh, four of the six in the NL was tr- that was true. Only the Twins in either league had a worse strikeout rate than the Mariners. Though the Rockies were worse relative to NL average, and the Mariners were relative to AL average. And this is another data point I think probably influenced the Mariners besides just the visceral experience of how many times they struck out in the in the final week of the season. The Rangers went from a strikeout rate that was 1.8% greater than league average in 2022 
lower than league average in 2023. And obviously their their success changed dramatically. So if you look at the highest Mariners strikeout rates, a minimum of 200 at-bats last season. So no Dylan Moore, who is very high on this list as well. And we'll see what happens there. Mike Ford is number one at 32%. He's been non-tendered. Jared Kelnick, 32% traded. Teoscar Hernandez, 31%, not coming back in free agency. Eugenio Suarez, 31%, traded. Cal Raleigh, 28%, probably the one one guy they're going to allow to strike out on the roster next year. And then Tom Murphy, 28%, on Desert Gone as well. Yeah. at the same time, does the Rangers roster in 2022 versus 2023 look that radically different? I mean, I don't didn't do the research on how much of it is just the good players played more in 2023. But also, there could be some regression to it as well. That's that's also the case, although strikeout rate is not a particularly variable stat from year to year. I, I mean, say. if the Rangers struck out, I, I am sure that yeah, the health was a factor, but it does make me think that there is some randomness to strikeouts as well. I mean, there's definitely some degree of it, but I think it's probably, it's much lower with kind of the, you know, the underlying stats than it is with the stats that, uh, you know, are more based on ball and play kind of outcomes. So I don't think that was it. I mean, I don't necessarily, there's not like an obvious, oh, they got rid of this super high strikeout guy, and that's why their strikeout rate dropped. The Rangers. Yeah. I was going to say, the Mariners got rid of all of them. Uh, well, the, their strikeout rate hasn't dropped yet. Except we, for mean, Cole Calhoun, I guess, was the, the guy. It will. I'm sure that that is something that the Mariners pinpointed. We talked about this midseason, though, and I, I noted to you that basically the Mariners had like three of the top 10 players in strikeouts, and it was one of those things that I, I don't know enough about overall team stats to see how much that's a factor. Definitely doesn't seem great. It also seems like a situation where, it, and we saw this a lot with the Mariners, in when you have runners on base, having a lot of high strikeout players a lot of times means that you get in situations where you might have the bases loaded with nobody out with one out and not scoring runs. Yep. And I feel like that's something that happened in the Mariners. I, I don't know statistically, but it seems like that's something that happened in the Mariners more often than I ever remember it happening to them. Yep. And forever dating back 1993 to 1998 or so. And then the 2021, 2022 seasons. So, I mean, this was basically a salary dump. Let's talk a little about the players the Mariners got back. Uh, Jackson Coar was previously traded to the Braves last month for injured pitcher Kyle White. Uh, A supplemental first-round pick in 2018 had played parts of three seasons for the Royals, posting a 9.12 ERA in 74 innings. He started eight of his nine games in 2021, but none of the 30 since. Uh, His underlying peripherals, inevitably aren't that bad because no one's underlying peripherals are really that bad over an extended period of time, I would say. So I think, you know, the Mariners view him as like the seventh starter probably for next season, maybe the eighth starter, depending on, you know, you keep counting Robbie Ray in this list and Robbie Ray, we'll we'll see when he's back. Yeah, his fielding independent pitching last year was 5.29, which is not good, but not like 9.12 ERA bad. 
So uh, then probably the real prize of this trade for the Mariners is Cole Phillips, who was drafted by the Braves in the second round out of high school in 2022 after previously having Tommy John surgery has yet to throw a pitch as a pro. So I don't really have a good sense of like what a second round pick from a couple of years ago is worth in trade value terms in baseball, but it's something. I think you are being very generous about this. Uh I, I don't know. I mean, I read the whole fan graphs piece on this, which maybe was a little bit too harsh, but what was their description of of Cole Phillips? It was basically like the chances of him ever even sniffing the majors are pretty low. That seems... I mean, the odds of any individual pick are not very good, but... Like, you... They already knew he had a Tommy John, Tommy John surgery when he got drafted in the second round. So clearly there's a lot of talent here. Any so. 20-year-old in rookie ball is inherently a long shot to become an impact major leaguer, and Phillips still needs an to prove... impact major leaguer, sure, yeah. Fine. I don't... And Phillips still needs to prove that he can retain his velocity, velocity after elbow surgery. But also, I believe high school pitchers are the least reliable players as far as making the majors uh like I mean, high that's school probably pitchers. true but the, the like moneyball idea that drafting high school pitchers is stupid is actually no longer the case as far as i understand it from the there's most a moneyball idea that you shouldn't draft high school pitchers yes they, they're by, by far the most likely to blow out their arms and i mean that obviously already happened prior to him even being drafted but I'm not holding my breath about either of these players. But that's, I mean, like, you can say that about any fucking prospect. I mean, that's the reason they're prospects. You definitely could not say that about any prospect. Literally, it's like, the prospects get ranked. Do you not know that? I mean, I'm aware. Yes, there is obviously predictive power to that. But I'm saying that, like, if you could just, because you, you can't trade draft, you can now, like, in limited cases, what? I guess, trade back like draft more, It's, like, more offensive to say you could say that about any prospect. It's more, like, old school, like, you should always trade for major leaguers because every prospect, I don't know, they literally no, the rank point, prospects. The prospects point is have to have, skills. you have to have a diverse profile of prospects because you don't know which ones are going to hit. And so having another guy who was drafted in the second round is better than not having another guy who was drafted sure. in the second round recently. But I can tell you who was a better prospect than either Jackson Cora or Cole Phillips was the player who was like a top 10 prospect in baseball not that long ago, who we thought was kind of the future of the franchise and Jared Kalanick. Just like... I mean, we definitely don't think he's that. I, 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 I We don't anymore, but there was a time when he was a prospect and he also has played. He has had good stints in the majors. Stint. He's a good stint. All right, let's get into the roundup. Well, the news is not much better on the professional sports front in Seattle for the Kraken, who have dropped their last five games, going winless on a four-game road trip that wrapped up Monday night in Montreal. They earned one point in a shootout loss at Toronto, but that was it dropping to tie for 11th in the West with 22 points. Shot volume metrics continue to paint the Kraken as an above-average team. Same with Hockey Reference's expected goals cal calculation that takes into account location of shots. The Kraken remain in the NHL's bottom three in shooting percentage after finishing second last year. So it's really tough to know like 
probably they definitely weren't really the second best shooting team and they wrote a lot of shot making luck last season they're probably not as bad as they have looked thus far this season the seattle sounders exercised 2024 options on 10 players including starters josh tencio yaimar gomez andrade joao paulo jackson reagan and albert rushnak uh, keeping Rushnak a double designated player, as well as Javier Ariaga, the latter a bit of a surprise given his salary as a third center back, but uh, seems likely the Sounders think he'll have trade value on his current contract. Their declined options were to back up goalkeeper Stefan Cleveland, homegrown player Ethan Dobelair, and backup forward Bear. Still have an announced reported contract extension for free agent goalkeeper Stefan Fry, but appears they'll try to get younger behind him in goal, maybe give Cleveland a chance to play more elsewhere than he would behind the, his fellow Stefan. Uh, Tiago Brandao of Territorio MLS was the first to report the Sounders are close to finalizing a transfer for Argentine winger Pedro de la Vega, currently playing for Lanús, where he's scored six goals with three assists in 25 matches this season. It's a ton of production. No. Uh, Sounder, I, I was like in 10 matches and you were like 25 nope, matches. Nope, a lot of matches. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I got you and Dewar in the, on the discord, which you should check out the discord. If you haven't uh, not real high on this signing uh, sounder at heart, which confirmed the negotiations between the two clubs noted if the 22 year old De La Vega signs as a young designated player to fill the spot opened up by Nico Ladero's departure. It would count just 200 K against the cap. So giving the Sounders some money to continue to spend on uh, using targeted allocation money, or uh, they also will have a couple of uh, under 22 salary spots to use. So those are other ways to add to the roster this offseason. But the most notable thing here about Pedro de la Vega is that even though his name does not reflect it at all, he is of Italian descent. Hello. There we go. Someone's been watching the Mariners playbook. Sunday. It's almost here. What we've been waiting for really since... Wait, are we just moving on? I, I just wanted to say, I mean, I, look, I'm not an all prospects are the same kind of guy like you, but <laughs> look, if we if we haven't seen the play, they're all precisely the same. They're either good or they're bad. I'm saying part of uh, the ranking is the draft. The draft is a ranking. They ranked him in the top 60 in that, or, yeah, I don't know how many actual picks there are in the second round. There's probably like... <laughs> It's probably like 80. I don't How know. How many picks is. could there be? <laughs> what could it cost? $10? <laughs> uh, sure. Anyway, I signing, uh, he's, you said he's 22, 23? 22. A 22-year-old Argentine? Oh, here's an interesting note. So Cole Phillips was the 57th pick in 2022. You know who picked 58th in 2022? Who, the Mariners? The Seattle Mariners. And who'd they draft? Uh, a first person baseman out of VCU named Tyler Locklear. And this is the first time hearing of him. Oh, big Tyler Locklear guy. You know my my perspective on Tyler Locklear? Exactly the same as every other prospect. <laughs> no thoughts. Prospect. <laughs> I Done. don't think you should have strong takes Analyzed. on prospects. <laughs> That's the fan graphs thing where they just said they just said traded for two prospects or whatever. All prospects are the same. Therefore, this trade was bad. Uh getting a 22-year-old striker from Argentina as a designated player. Winger. He's a winger. A winger. Okay. As somebody, well, that makes more sense why he didn't score as many goals as well. But yeah. like uh 
and how many assists? There was more assists, right? No, it was only three assists. It was fewer. There were fewer assists. Uh, he, Surely he there had to be more assists, right? You're you're Natalie Portman meaning me mean at this point. There were more assists. There were more assists, right? Uh, he presumably takes Leo Chu's spot or competes with Leo Chu. I I do think that is as far as like you know they've had some much older designated players, uh, and they yeah. have not seemingly developed anybody, especially internationally. So having the chance to develop somebody there that presumably has a higher ceiling than uh, maybe some of the other players. I, I still think it's a kind of an exciting proposition for the Sounders. I, I like the idea of it, certainly. All right, Izzy was saying Sunday is the day we've been waiting for Hello. since last February, since the moment that Courtney Vandersloot signed with the New York Liberty. Did you have that uh, uh, baseball draft lottery <laughs> for today? <laughs> that I Wait. learned that there was a draft lottery in baseball by getting the notification? I did not get the notification, so I did oh, not learn about that. I believe thing. the Guardians got the first pick in the baseball draft lottery, which is the, the thing. So the Mariners were in it since they didn't make the playoffs? I, I don't know. Probably. I would assume so. I think the Mariners were like picked 16 or something. Uh, they had the 17th best odds. Yes. Somehow the Washington Nationals were ineligible to receive a lottery pick. Uh, limits more teams in larger markets from winning draft lottery picks in consecutive seasons. So there you go. Uh, the Mariners did not obviously win the lottery and they will pick 15th. According to the Mariners, they are in the smallest market. If you ask John Stanton, <laughs> Podunk, Seattle, Washington. If, if you ask John Stanton, it's the smallest of markets. There's never, there's never been a smaller market. Kansas city, Oakland, Seattle, all the same. Anyway, We've got lottery fever around here. WNBA draft lottery Sunday at 1.30 p.m. on ESPN between the South Carolina, Utah and Yukon, North Carolina doubleheader on the network of women's college basketball games. The Storm hosting a lottery viewing party at Rough and Tumble Pub in Ballard. Is a recap, the Storm will have a 10% chance at the number one pick, a 14.5% chance at number two, and a 75% chance of ending up with the fourth pick. So, the odds aren't great, but there is a chance. You can't win if you don't play. I mean, 10% odds are a lot better than zero. Yeah, and even the number four pick, as we've talked about, would be their highest pick since they drafted Brianna Stewart in 2016. But the so. fourth pick is very different. Like, I, I mean, yes, the highest since drafting Brianna Stewart, but that was pick one. Well, not, I'm not saying they're going to get a Brianna Stewart. I'm just saying they haven't added, you know, they haven't had a lottery pick at any point in the past, you know, eight years here. I was listening to, uh, I listened to Simmons and Cousin Sal and Simmons was talking at the Patriots and he was like, I haven't had to pay attention to the draft for like 20 years, right? As far as like top draft picks, like the Patriots have not, have they even, they they had a like trade top 10 pick at some point, right? That well, they, they had one last year, didn't they? Did they? Christian Gonzalez. He was like pick 17 or 18. Oh, was he? I yeah. think it was higher than that. I guess they did go eight and nine. Uh but they did go what? Eight and nine. So yeah, he was the seventeenth pick. Mac Jones was fifteenth. 
but it is kind of wild to think about not having a top draft pick for like multiple decades. Like uh, Jared Mayo was number 10 in 2008. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that was the one that I was thinking of that they got from the Raiders as part of the Richard Seymour trade. I want to say that sounds right. Anyway, that was just kind of a wild thought to me to be like, Oh, I finally can pay attention to college sports because it'll have an impact. But for the storm, it has not been that long. However, this is the most important draft lottery in Storm history. <laughs> it is not. Did they win the lottery when they when they got Brianna Stewart? They did, yes. They have spent an entire season building to this moment this weekend when the Storm finally land Caitlin Clark and rejuvenate the franchise. You're just bold, boldly predicting it? It's boldly hoping it. Uh, can you walk me through the draft lottery process as well? I mean, like how they conduct it, or like is it, what it's going it to look like on ping TV. Pong balls. What 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 literally happens? Is it just a computer generated program? No, there's a thousand co combinations that are given out, and uh, there are fourteen. Or there, I don't know. It's ten ten numbers, I think, that have uh, to match or something. They really make the process very complicated. But basically, they 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 draw the numbers out of the hopper, not logos, and then based on the sequence of numbers, you determine which team owns that sequence. And the, so they pre-assign the sequence of numbers. Correct. Okay. But then on television, they just show the number four pick, the number uh -huh. three pick. It's not as it's not as dramatic because there's not as long of a countdown count as there is. In the, so it's just going to be like it could be straight away number four storm, and then we're like, well, shit. Yes, and they're and drawing then, for each one of those. And four then picks, we're right. hoping for Indiana to get the number one pick to convince Caitlin Clark to stay in college another year. <laughs> like it's just Indiana. <laughs> I mean, who are the other, the other three teams in the, in the lottery? Well, I guess other two if it's Indiana. Uh, Los Angeles is one of them, and Phoenix is the other. Well, let's so, go Fever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they're drawing for each of the four picks. I mean, they they draw for the first two picks, and then three and four slotted in based on where you on where you were entering the lottery. So that's why the Storm can't finish third. I see. Okay. And the second pick in the draft is that still looking like Angel Reese or? Uh, we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of questions about who's going to enter the draft, obviously, as all of these players have an extra COVID year of eligibility. I would say at this point, so Angel Reese did not play in a number of games for LSU, was not on the bench. Kim Mulkey, like, is, is much to draw attention to the absence as possible, answered the questions about it, like, is aggrieved about the questions as possible, mm -hmm. none of which was great. Cameron Brink's really good. I think Cameron Brink might be number two. I mean, Paige Beckers, I, I think she seems the least likely to come out of this group, but she also would very much be in the mix. Cameron Brink? She's the one that played with Jake One. Oh, hello. Yeah. In Stanford the like, Center. celebrity turn or game that he played in? Yes, in the... Uh, the why am I blanking on the name of the Doug Baldwin? It's okay. I, quote, I quoted group. celebrity when I said that. <laughs> uh... And and is uh, as center at Stanford, so six foot four. Uh, hmm. okay. Yeah. So you're basically saying, depending on who comes out, 
there could be four very good players in this draft. It is totally plausible that there could be four like all-star caliber players. In this and draft. Ka- Caitlin Clark is the only player who seems like a truly generational superstar. I mean, when Paige Beckers was healthy her first season, it was a it was a legitimate debate between her and Caitlin Clark as the nation's best freshman point guard. And look, Angel Reese was the best player on the the best team in the country last year. So I think all of these okay. kind of players can have great careers. So so even if the Storm don't get the number one pick, things could still be looking good for them. Correct. All right, well, speaking of women's college basketball, the UW women ran their record to 9-0 with a pair of wins at home. They beat, uh, were dominant in a 63-39 win over San Francisco on Saturday, then a narrow win Tuesday night over Montana State. Uh, their defense, again, dominated the Dons, who shot 4 of 27, 15% in the first half. El Ladin led the way with 16 points and 10 boards. On Tuesday, as part of a doubleheader with the men, both against Montana State, the women got a bit of a scare from the Bobcats. They led by just two entering the fourth quarter, did open up a double-digit lead with three minutes left before Montana State scored late to produce the final five-point margin. Delia Daniels' 15 points led three Huskies in double figures as Tina Langley shorted her rotation to seven players. The Huskies will put that perfect record on the line in their conference opener Sunday at Washington State. The Cougs, fresh off their first 20-win season in school history, have started 9-1 with their lone loss to Green Bay in the championship of the Cancun Classic and are ranked number 21 in the latest AP poll. Uh, Washington State crushed Maryland by 20 in that tournament, got a really good win over Gonzaga at home in OT. Speaking of Cameron Brick, the Zags blew out number three Stanford on Saturday. I just saw that when Googling her. Didn't like it. Yeah. I, I heard she was battling illness from a Google headline. <laughs> I think that is accurate. I'm well researched over here. I found out that Paige Beckers is a point guard who plays at UConn. And to me, it's a guy who only knows Sue Bird says she seems like a Sue Bird type. I mean, she does. She is more of the Sue Bird type, whereas Caitlin Clark, you know, really doesn't play like any WNBA player in history, but is more Diana Taurasi ish if you're going to compare her to anyone. Okay. Guy who's only watched Sue Bird play. Getting a, getting, getting a lot of Sue Bird vibes <laughs> from Paige Beckers. <laughs> uh, why, why don't you think she'll come out? Because she missed all of last season with an ACL tear. Missed much of her sophomore season with, I believe it was a meniscus injury. So she's only played one full healthy college season thus far. So she hasn't really gotten the full college experience that Caitlin Clark has thus far. And when when does that decision need to be made? That decision can be made at the end of the season. Correct. Players have until it's like basically the week before the draft, which happens the same week as the the typically as the NCAA championship game, and then teams that make it to the final four, you have forty eight hour until forty eight hours after your final game. Okay. So All right. we won't it's know until dramatic. right. It's a really odd thing because you have this lottery and you just have no idea who's in the draft. <laughs> I mean, usually you have a pretty good sense because usually there aren't this many players with an extra COVID year of eligibility. But this is I'm pretty hyped on all those players. Paige Beckers seems exciting to me. Cameron yeah. Brink. Are you to men's basketball? Here we go. 
uh, sandwiched a pair of home blowouts over an 86-81 loss to number 20 Colorado State in Las Vegas. Uh, perhaps the biggest development in their blowout win over UC San Diego last Tuesday was Braxton Mia scoring 14 points in 15 minutes, including perfect 6 of 6 foul shooting. Keon Brooks Jr. had a double-double of 18 points and 12 boards, and Severe Wheeler had 17 points and 8 assists. While Corin Johnson scored 14 starting in place of Paul Mulcahy, who was back in the lineup on Saturday when the Huskies couldn't take advantage of an opportunity to get a really good win against a ranked Colorado State team. They tied the game at 78-all with 131 left, but the Rams scored the next five points, and Mulcahy missed a three with 12 seconds left that could have tied it back up. It was freaking there. It was there, that shot. It just clanged out. But... (sighs) They you had the well. shot. I, no, I mean, I, I think this UW basketball team is, th- this is the best UW basketball team that we've seen under Mike Hopkins in a very long time. And they honestly, even if you go back to kind of the Noel days, I think they're kind of the most complete team that we've seen under Mike Hopkins, maybe in his, his entire tenure at UW. Even teams that ended up playing in big games or whatever, when you watch them play, they look a lot more like a complete basketball team than some teams that he had, which maybe were weaker pack 12s or kind of just like got lucky. But I mean, it's funny. The Huskies moved up to number 53 on Ken Palm tonight. They're final. They were the same rank going into the NCAA tournament in 2020 or 2019, I should say. And they played in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. This is the year they won the pack 12. Uh, they were How all... long ago was 2019? <laughs> well, the Pac-12 still existed. Uh, they were 110th in adjusted offensive efficiency that year. So I think that does speak to your point. But but I see this team like they're. You said they're 53rd right now. Yes, they're probably 53rd and going to steadily rise as well. I mean, but... we'll see. But this is far and away the best offense of the Mike Hopkins era. Before this, they had never ranked in the top 100 in adjusted offensive efficiency. They are currently 55th. I like a lot of the players on offense also. And it's just, it's a feeling that you get when when you watch basketball of, are they running a real offense here? Or every time they score, you feel like they've gotten lucky. And I do think this offense, probably most from any I've seen, from a Mike Hopkins offense is like, oh, they actually are playing basketball right now. It's not just like somebody bailed them out or whatever. So I, I've been impressed with this team overall. They've got size. They, they've got just like a hint of shooting, right? Yes. There's notes of shooting. Against Colorado State, I love Severe Wheeler. Like they, they have complementary players to each other. And Keon Brooks with his size and his finishing ability, Severe Wheeler being able to drive, and then even Pummel Kehi having some slashing ability, plus Moses Wood being able to shoot. This is more UW basketball players than I've ever been able to name at this point in the season before. So, I mean, I, I think I the Colorado think, State game was like a really kind of a proof of concept of what we thought was going to be successful about this team in terms of the, their experience and then the depth at center because Braxton Mia and Frank Kepnong both pick up two fouls in the first half, and yep. Wilhelm Breitenbach comes in, and they go on a run. There we go. No, you were excited about that one. Oh, yeah. No, I, I also... Remember when I, I said on the emergency pod that I was going to get the biggest fucking Christmas tree we could find? Yeah. Seven to eight foot Nordman fur. That sucker is massive, right? I said that it was going to be National Lampoon style. You don't have pretty high ceilings. It is like hitting one of the ceilings. In fact, the little like point at the top of the tree that you put the star on, uh, 
I had to cut off part of that to be able to fit the star onto the tree because I couldn't even get it on there. That is what winning the Pac-12 and going to the college football playoff after beating Oregon gets you, children. Well, Phillips also has a pretty high ceiling. You forgot who that is already. That's, that's... He's just not. Like, I'd already blown on his arm by the time he got to the majors. Uh, Moses Wood scored He's... 21 points. So Saturday, second round draft. How many players? I bet you I could go to. I mean, I'm going to go to a random year second round draft. I'm just saying you have trade value by definition if you were drafted in the second round and haven't done anything to change your value since. They wanted clearly they targeted him in 2022. They the were Mariners? pissed off when the Braves took him one spot. Oh ahead of them. yeah, they were furious. They were so mad that they had to draft player. <laughs> <laughs> Was something Locklear? It was not Sean Locklear, though. Uh, Moses Wood scored 21 points on Saturday, making five threes. Keon Brooks Jr. had 20. Severe Wheeler had 13 points and 12 assists, but shot just five of 18 from the field. That was one of the things that stood out down the stretch. It was a lot of, like, Severe Wheeler hard banker, driving banker that just rolled off. Uh, Huskies returned home Tuesday to blow out Montana State. They trailed 2019 early, but a 15-0 run broke the game open. Frank Kepnong led the way with a double-double of 16 points and 11 boards. Four players in double figures for the Huskies. Uh, I went to the 2016 MLB draft because I figured that would be enough time for the players to be in the majors by now. And what pick did you say that Cole Phillips was? 57th. 57th. That person is not even listed on here on the Wikipedia, but I will say in that second round, Brian Reynolds, Pete Alonso, and Bo Bichette. All hitters, of course. Well, that's, that's great news for Tyler Locklear. <laughs> yeah. Our dude, Tyler Locklear. So Saturday, or Sunday, no, Saturday. Saturday gets real. L- later in that draft, there's all, are, there's also Zach Gallon, Corbin Burns, and Shane Bieber. All college pitchers, though. None of them are high school pitchers. Anyway, for the every first process, time, the same. <laughs> not anyway, what I said. For the first time since 2019, Gonzaga is coming to Heck Ed to play the Huskies, and it looks a little different than it's looked in the past, right? A little bit. I I may have overstated things when I told you it was not your dad's Gonzaga or your older brother's Gonzaga, because uh-huh. I said that after they lost to Purdue. Uh, their lone loss in a brutal Maui invitation owner. The Gonzaga was ranked number 11 in the country. They had to play number two Purdue in the first game because there were three other teams ranked higher than them in the Maui field, which is wild. Uh, Zags then rallied to beat Syracuse and UCLA in the consolation bracket, also beat USC 89-76 in Las Vegas last Saturday in their other major conference matchup, now 7-1. and one. Nolan Hickman and Antoine, Anton Watson are the two returning starters. They added a pair of starters via transfers in Wyoming big Graham Ike, who you may recall had 26 points and 10 boards in a 77-72 Wyoming win over UW at Hackett in November 2021. <laughs> <laughs> who are you saying you may remember? Was that to me? I think you, <laughs> you, you were frustrated about this in the moment. I'm surprised you don't remember it. Yeah, I, I just the, the fact that you think that I could possibly remember. I think I think like that was the royal you may remember. I I mean, look, it was their their they had already lost to Northern Illinois. That Wyoming team was really good. It was not a bad loss for the Huskies at all. Actually, it was pretty impressive. They took them to overtime. Right. 
Uh, the other transfer is Creighton guard Ryan Nemhard following in his footsteps of his older brother, Andrew, in Spokane. Their fifth starter is freshman Dusty Stromer. Uh, not a great shooting team, but they dominate the offensive glass where they rank 10th nationally, and they have improved defensively from last year, ranking 19th in adjusted defensive efficiency. But we talked about it. Like This is this is a legitimate Husky team, and they were in 2019 when Gonzaga came to town as part of the biggest week in Seattle sports history. No, I guess that was a different year. No, that was way earlier. Yeah, it was way earlier. Uh, like that, because that was the Quade Green good start, I think, for the Huskies that year. Or no, Quade Green was back that year. He played that full year. No, yeah, it was the Quade Green start where they had beaten Baylor, number th- who ended up that year. 2019, you're talking about. It was what, what was the big man that they had, right? For Gonzaga? No, for UW that ended up being suspended. No, it was Quade Green got was academically ineligible. Okay. You're thinking of uh, the transfer from Fresno State that that other year. That was a, that was a different year. They had a they had a big man who was pretty good, but also seemed like he was like 60 years old. He already looked like Patrick Ewing at the end of his career when he was in college. Yeah, that was back in the Romar days. I I've I've forgotten that person's name entirely. This is the Isaiah Stewart, Jaden McDaniel's team. Got it. And with Quade Green, they were like legit. They were seven and one coming into the Gonzaga game. Their only loss was to Tennessee on a neutral site. Had beaten a Baylor team that was that ended up ranked number three in Ken Palm in Anchorage in their opener. So it that. seemed like a legit chance. They ended up losing 83-76 to Gonzaga. Uh, in that one, all five Gonzaga starters scored double figures, led by 17 from Philippe Petrashev. But also, that was a much better Gonzaga team at the time, right? I mean, Correct. just even looking at Ken Palm, they, they were number one seed. They were they number finished two number two overall. Well, they were, there were no seeds. This was 2019-20, but they were on track to be a number two seed. Uh, and then this year's team, I mean, even being ranked ninth for Gonzaga is relatively low for them, right, at this point in the season? Yes. Last year's team was in this ballpark. Was that wasn't that like a relatively close game also though? Uh no, last year the Huskies lost 77-60 at the Kennel. Okay. A game I do not remember real well. <laughs> but you expect me to remember a Wyoming loss from 2 years ago? The losses you remember much more, yeah. They lost to Gonzaga also. <laughs> But I'm saying like unexpected the, losses. The, the losses you remember more than the loss. I mean, basically, what's what the situation is? I, they don't I, have Drew for, Timmy anymore. For Husky basketball, I'm the opposite because I remember the wins more. Like that game against Baylor, I remember listening to that on the radio specifically. Right? We, we were streaming it because it happened opposite a UW football game. Possibly the no, it wouldn't have been the Pac-12 championship, but it was definitely opposite a UW football game. I'm. I'm very confident of that. Maybe it was a game later in that tournament. Did they they played Baylor? Did no, it wasn't a tournament. They just played a game. In it was Anchorage. just a one off. It was the season opener. Let me see if I can figure out who the football team was playing all, that night. All the losses are nameless, faceless losses to me, though, against whatever. Like, I mean, that's what the Huskies haven't done. The loss to Nevada wasn't an amazing loss. And I think some of the teams that they've lost to might not look, you know, San Diego state obviously is not the same team that went to the championship game last year, but 
at the same time, they haven't lost to somebody truly embarrassing. Nope. And I think that that is a huge difference. Also crushing some of these smaller teams. You know, I think that's something that they have not done. And having these big victories, it matters ultimately. Yeah. Uh, the UW football team was playing at Oregon State, got a 20, 19 to 7 win. Uh, Jacob Eason was 16 of 32 for 175 yards and two touchdowns. But Savan Ahmed uh, carried 25 times for 174 yards and two touchdowns. And the defense held Jake Luton to 88 passing yards. Those guys both ended up in the NFL. <laughs> it must have been rainy. I don't know. I don't really remember the weather in that one, but it must have been rainy. It's an Oregon State game. Joe Tryon had two sacks. And we know what the weather show was. Had one and a half. Not good. It's never good. Yeah. Uh, percentage chances of victory. Are we doing this? Wow, yeah. we're doing this. I, mean, I don't know. It's a big game. 35 percent 30 percent optimistic i think this team could win this game in fact i'm going to be even more optimistic because you told me that was optimistic i'm going to give it like a 41 percent wow yeah they're coming into uw this team is is hardened they're experienced right it's a it's an experienced team playing against a, a brand new gonzaga team that's still gelling i think the huskies are gonna win this game <laughs> but not more likely than not i'm going like 30 percent Gonzaga is not. I'm not yet Baltimore. I'm not seeing any of it, and I, I will be so happy to just look down at my phone and just find out find out the outcome one way or another. I will also not be seeing any any of it since I'll be in Las Vegas. Uh, the uh, this is the this is the first true road game for Gonzaga this season. Although there really will probably think. be a lot of zags in the in attendance. If the Huskies win, don't expect an emergency pod. Well, if the Seahawks win, also don't expect an emergency pod for those same reasons that we've just laid out, as we will both be flying back from uh, our vacations on Sunday afternoon. If the Seahawks win, expect an emergency pod, because it'll be an emergency. Something <laughs> will have had to have happened within the country for the Seahawks to have won this game. We're not going to do an emergency pod about the game. We're going to do an emergency pod for whatever happened in the country that amounted to the Seahawks winning this football game. Should we talk about the Cowboys game? It's been so long, but yes. It has been a long time. Uh, the Seahawks played well. They certainly could have won. It was not... Like, I think a lot of people ended up very frustrated about, you know, the the fourth and one play call and, you know, the the series of fourth down, uh, in unsuccessful fourth down attempts for the Seahawks. But to me, it's like, look, they played a really good team to the wire on the road. They acquitted themselves well. It just made it all the more frustrating that they lost that game to the Rams two weeks earlier because that was the one they needed to win. And all of a sudden the Rams are even with them in the standings and have the tiebreaker. And the Packers are good. And have a super easy schedule the rest of the way. And the Seahawks have their schedule. Do you want to know what I remember from this game? What's that? That the next day, (laughs) UW, Threw a touchdown to Quentin Moore, his second catch of the season, to basically clinch a victory against Oregon. Dylan Johnson, that run at the end of the game. Do you remember that? D motherfucking J. Let's go. That's what I remember about this game. Who cares? Right? So many better things happen after that. The Seahawks looked good. They are both not good enough for moral victories. Or they 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 are. Too, too good, good for, for moral too victory. good for moral victories, and also 
not good enough to not be happy claim a moral victory they are exactly right in the middle like but and the schedule is too difficult for them to even worry about moral victories they just have to win games at this point because realistically the seahawks are on the outside looking in for the playoffs i think there's probably a, a shot that even if they were to win all of the last the last three after they play the eagles they may still miss the playoffs well, i think that's that's the likely scenario at this point i would say there's definitely a chance that they have to, if they lose to the Niners, run the table after that to make the playoffs. Stuff's going to happen or whatever. But like, I, it would have been awesome to have won that game. It was a very fun game to watch. They pushed the Cowboys very hard. The Cowboys are a really good team. But the Niners are waiting on the other end of it. And the Niners played the 10-1 Eagles and absolutely annihilated them on the road. So it is hard to look forward when you know that that's coming. Like, it's the same as the Apple Cup, right? For the Huskies. It was just like, I just, with Oregon coming, it is hard to even be concerned with this. A win against the Cowboys would have been huge, but you know what's waiting the week after. So all of those moral victories, how Geno Smith played, getting the ball out early, offense looking pretty good, DK being a beast again, JSN looking amazing. Like, all of that stuff, the Seahawks defense could not get off the field against the Cowboys. And ultimately, like Jamal Adams, they led the league in shit-talking in that game on that Thursday. And I will say that the Seahawks defense is so good at shit-talking. But in the end, Jamal Adams was nowhere near the play in the end zone. And that to me was, it was just like, what are we doing here? The Cowboys are a better offense. You talk so much shit, but they were the ones who scored and won the game. And you couldn't pick up a handful of fourth down. So take your moral victory, take your shit talk, the season's over. Well, after you awarded the Seahawks a moral defensive victory for their performance against the 49ers on Thanksgiving, the performance last Thursday dropped them to 24th in defensive DVOA. Offense moved up to 14th. So again, pretty clear which side of the ball is not keeping up its end of the bargain, even though so much of the attention has been on Geno Smith and the offense. And I think it is interesting you know, the thing about average quarterbacks is every once in a while they're going to develop deliver a really impressive performance. And that's what Gino did in this one after kind of seeing the the other side of, you know, an average quarterback in recent weeks. So I I don't know if I think they schemed this game against the Cowboys much better than they have previous games. Without question. I mean we joke about Pete Carroll's fixing it. But whatever, you know, it whatever the conversation was with Shane Waldron about using receivers in the right ways, it happened in this game. And I do think part of it is just they got to run more plays. Like, yeah, there's going to be a lot more opportunities for everybody if you run more plays. Because if you're constantly going three and out, you're not going to have an opportunity to target everybody. I think the Cowboys defense also is definitely worse than I think we thought they were. It really just they looked better overall as a team. And that to me is what I took hope from it was not against the Niners, but it was hope for the last four after that. Like the Eagles all of a sudden on the flip side of that, you know, who they're playing next week look like a very beatable team in Seattle. And if the offense plays the way that the offense played against Dallas, they can beat that Philly team at home. So yeah. That that to me is is a very winnable game. And I mean, Ben has been talking about this. Ben Baldwin has been talking about this quite a bit. 
that that is probably the most winnable game for the stretch, right? Because the, the Eagles are not anywhere near as good as the 49ers. They're playing it at home vis-a-vis the road where the Cowboys were played. And I think overall, like, what are the Eagles? The, they're up to eighth, actually. I'm shocked. They went up in DBOA with that game. I think the game was probably closer than the final score indicated. Uh, the uh, other thing about it is now it is going to be played is a night game on the West Coast, which has historically been a favorable situation for the Seahawks against East Coast teams. But they also are going to be one of the worst defenses that the Seahawks will have played in a quite a long time. Uh, so when you look at it, it's been, you know, a month or something since they've played a defense that bad. They're behind the Rams. Yeah, they are behind the Rams. I mean, they're in they're two spots behind them. I don't know that that's a dramatic difference. But still, they are behind the Rams. And I think that's something that, you know, ultimately, like this Eagles defense, they are much hyped. But the way that the Niners went up and down the field, had players open on almost every series after the first two series of the game, it was, I guess, Washington's defense is probably worse. <laughs> Literally the worst defense in the NFL. So it's it's the worst defense that they will have played since Washington. Uh but that's significant significant amount of time at that point. And to have an opportunity against a team like that. I think this Niners game, I I do not think they have a realistic chance in this game. We saw what happened on Thanksgiving night in Seattle. There was a moment where it looked interesting, but ultimately if you're gonna have the 24th ranked defense like the Seahawks have, you're just not slowing this team down when they're healthy across the board. Like it, they're pretty unstoppable on offense. The battle star, the death star, I should say, is fully operational at this point for the 49ers. Uh, they passed the Ravens to become the number one team in DVOA after their blowout win of the Eagles. They're number one in offense, number three in defense. And since the bye, since getting healthy and integrating Chase Young, they are 4 0 with a plus 85 point differential. So like, the really- good thing is, since the Leonard Williams trade, the Seahawks have had one of the best. No? Okay, never mind. Draft picks. <laughs> They've improved their draft pick a lot since then. So, I like there really wasn't even, to me, a lot of need to do kind of full notes for this one. Look, we know who the Niners are. And we know that they have dominated the Seahawks in four consecutive matchups over the last two seasons. I don't know. We talked about this team two weeks ago. When everybody's healthy... They are a terrifying team. They have so many different ways to beat you. And the Seahawks defense is not playing. I still think, I still think that there is a good defense somewhere inside of there for the Seahawks. I do not think that they are the 24th best defense in the NFL. They just aren't doing it on the field, which is one of the more important things for a defense to do uh, is play well and stopping teams on the field. I, I just, I'm not. I'm not willing to accept that this is who they are because I do think there is enough talent and I think they can put it together. Is it going to happen this week against the 49ers? I'd be pretty surprised about that one, but longer term, we'll see. I just, I'm like, I, it would be so much fun to have a close game against the Niners. That's where I'm at right now with this one. Percentage chances of victory? I have 12. It's a rare situation where I'm higher than you. I'm going 15%. There we go. Jalen Carter, the the Eagles defense keeps getting worse. Jalen Carter still never makes a play. Every week we could keep checking on this. Has Jalen Carter made a play yet? Nope. Hasn't made a play. 
Defensive Rookie of the Year odds remain unchanged. How many drives in a row did the Niners score a touchdown on? All of them? Uh, Jalen Carter is down to fourth in defensive tackle pass rush win rate. He's, you know, behind Aaron Donald and Dexter Lawrence. So what a bust. <laughs> but he's dropping also, right? He was number one. So going down is not a good sign. Sure. Wearing down. He's winning this defensive player of the year for what he did at Georgia last year. Like, that is what's happening. And I also watched him at Georgia. Still didn't see him make a play. Maybe Georgia needed him against Alabama last weekend. But this whole Georgia defense that has been so touted, right? The amount of moves that happened about the Eagles' Georgia defense. And now they are ranked number 21. All right, we'll, we'll do the Eagles pod next week. You can talk about Jalen Carter more then. <laughs> Which of Jalen Carter's one-half stuffs in their 42-19 to loss to the Niners did you love the most? It's just exhausting. <laughs> Unless you call him by his actual name. Uh, let's wrap up <laughs> with the Huskies. One-half one sack in the last five games. There's your defensive rookie of the year. Who received the number two seed in the college football playoff after beating Oregon on Friday. And will face... For a second consecutive year, the Texas Longhorns, Longhorns and Steve Sarkeesian in the Sugar Bowl on New Year's Day. New Year's that Night, really. Wild, wild to be facing Texas again. And, you know, this is a matchup that we we don't have to uh, imagine too hard what it's going to be like because we've seen it in these two teams <laughs> in a lot of ways. Someone, someone should post a photo of the game last year and like be like exclusive AR generated. <laughs> Huskies versus Longhorns. Uh, you know, especially with Bijan out in that game, you look at the stats for the tech for Texas last year and the players who had an impact in that game. And for the Huskies, aside from a couple of players, the two teams look largely similar. And I think the reason this is most exciting, obviously, like the entire path to get here, everything we've talked about this Husky season. But the way that it feels different than 2016 is this is not just a we're happy to be here type game, right? Deep down, we knew in our hearts, UW was not beating that Alabama team. And this game against Texas, the spread, I assume, is quite a bit closer than that game against Alabama was. The squads are quite a bit closer. And I think that Kalen DeBoer and Michael Penix have proven in a way that I love Chris Peterson. He's an amazing coach, but Chris Peterson didn't have those big wins. And for Kalen DeBoer to have beaten Oregon three times in a row, to have beaten Texas last year, like they've kind of proven it in a way that I think we have to go into this game confident that at the very least, it is going to be a good competitive game. If we know anything about this Husky team, we are probably going to be so stressed for the three and a half hours that this game happens. But there's a I reality mean, that you I mean, it's stressed in the Peach Bowl. No, probably not, because everything that happened, anything that happened there was gravy. I would say, like, you're supposed to be stressed in these games. Yes. It's, it's, it's unusual that we were so stressed against Stanford and Arizona State. But here you're supposed to. That's the idea. I mean, that was a 24 to 7 loss against Alabama. And, and it was the team just wasn't as good as they are now. Jalen Hurts threw 14 passes. 
7 of 14 for 57 yards. Did they invent the tush push mid game? What happened? Uh, Bo Scarborough. You, you know what happened the following week. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that, that's well true on. also. Yeah, this Hurts guy will never make it. Bo Scarborough fair, though. 19 carries for 180 yards. And I mean, it was close until the pick six at the end of the first half. It was. Uh, Huskies were second and 10 at their own 32 and Jake Browning threw a pick when Jake Browning threw the pick six. What happened on that play? It was a 26 yard touchdown return. He, on, ju- from he the jumped 32. the route. It was like a throw to Jake's right. And Ryan Anderson jumped the route and took it back easily. Mika Fitzpatrick also had a pick. How long ago was this game? <laughs> I mean, 2016 was a very, you know, it was, wasn't quite a decade ago, but it was a long time ago. It really was. But also seeing the players, that's Seahawk legend, Bo Scarborough to you. Thank you. That's also uh, Jake Browning, NFL starting quarterback and like one of the most productive starting quarterbacks out there last week the jake browning 20 for 38 3.9 yards per completion and a 50 qbr wow this is bad quarterback play and this game across the board uh but the the texas defense i think texas actually is a a better defensive team statistically than they are offensively uh but it's not this alabama defense and i i think that draw trayvon diggs return a punt as well good god texas or alabama was good yeah. uh, not no shit. Uh, but this okay. The Huskies were twelve and a half point dogs. Yeah, they they were Florida State, right? Like they were the team that people were excited to play against. That Bama went into it and were like, "Yeah, that's the team that we want." And this year, this year it's different. This year, I I can close my eyes and visualize the Huskies playing in a national championship game, right? That is something that, that, you know, they're a game away. They're a game away against Alabama. They were a game away and a million miles away then. But for this one, it feels so different. And I think that's why there's so much excitement around it. You know, having Michael Penix, having Kalen DeBoer, the way this offensive played, the way the defense played against Oregon, because this is a worse offense than the one that they just beat in Las Vegas. And, you know, the defense overall, I think, has gotten maybe better throughout the season, I want to say. I think it's been up and down. Now, I think the case that you can make is that the returner, return of Ace Turner and having either Hill or Cam Fabiculan yeah. on the field for every play. And, you know, the exciting thing about this one is presumably you'll see more of Tulio Latule Lasanoa since, you know, he'll have a month to help rest the injury that, you know, he's been dealing with basically all season. So this should be the best version of the Husky defense that we see all year. Hell yeah freaking go uh i i i don't know i mean i'm happy and for the opportunity they're playing in a dome so oh yeah michael Penix jr they built him the dome <laughs> uh i i'm excited about even the opportunity to be playing in this game but i don't think the huskies are just happy to be there and i think that's the most important piece as we head into this we get an entire month basically to just bask in this game coming to what degree are you bummed that the Huskies aren't playing in the Rose Bowl? I would describe myself as, um, in percentage terms, sure, negative one billion percent. I do not care at all. I am at the least level of being nostalgic for the Rose Bowl. Like, I mean, yes, but how many Rose? You were going to try to go to the Rose Bowl, I, weren't you? I, I definitely, there, I was much more likely to go to the Rose Bowl. I mean, maybe I just, I don't think the crowd is going to be that big of a deal, to be honest. 
How many Husky Rose Bowls do you think I remember watching? Two? Precisely two. The two that I remember are UW playing, this is even in the background, Drew Brees and Purdue, and then the game against Ohio State uh, a couple of years ago. And so to me, like that matchup, I don't have the nostalgia for it that you do in the 90s. I don't remember them playing Michigan in the Rose Bowl, right? I've been a UW fan mostly in the 2000s. Playing in any bowl is exciting <laughs> for that time period. It's like there's no granddaddy of them all. To me, I think the entire concept of bowl games doesn't really make sense. It's like I've wanted the playoff for so long and we are right on the brink of having the proper size of playoff. Even this one, I, there's still, like, UW's in. I'm happy about how it's structured, but, like, and it probably gives the Huskies a better chance of winning how it's structured right now, if we're being honest. But I don't, I do not care at all about the Rose Bowl. It would have been a perfect year for my traditional bowl games plus four model, which is that you play the traditional bowl games as effectively the quarterfinals uh, and the f- winners of whatever four bowl games you decide advance to the semifinals, or maybe that's where you have the playoff involved. Because then Florida State, we would have seen them against a real opponent and not Louisville, and ha- known just how good they could be. How do you and pick those four though of the which bowls or which teams? Yeah, I mean it's maybe still, you, there's you... still complications. You just a bigger playoff, like you could debate in the NCAA tournament, like the 68th team or whatever could have possibly won the NCAA tournament. But like, ultimately all of the good teams are getting in and in a 12 team playoff, more or less all of the good teams are getting in. Like that's what college football needed this season. And there would have been some great games. What the fortunate thing that happened to college football was not fortunate for Florida state, but we did get a lot of quarterfinals, right? We got UW versus Oregon as a quarterfinal to the playoff. We got Alabama versus Georgia as a quarterfinal to the playoff. They had that set up this year, and it was awesome. So it wasn't exactly structured that way, but it was sort of like... I mean, Ohio State-Michigan was was and, and exactly, weekend, yeah. but that was a quarterfinal. Yeah. yeah, so they had three quarterfinals that happened, and, and then Texas also... <laughs> Texas just got in or whatever. But like there were three quarterfinals that happened with those teams. One of those teams is going in in each one. And all of them were some of the best games of the year that were played. How can you complain about this? I mean, that that's the point is those games aren't as meaningful if both of these those teams make it. I don't know if we need conference championship games and a playoff. To me, I, I think you can I kill the conference that. championships. And that that's like, but the the... There are still going to be meaningful games heading into a playoff for those slots, but then we get a chance to see them play again. And I will tell you, UW versus Oregon number one was fun. UW versus Oregon number two was even sweeter. So, all right. Well, we've got plenty of time here to look ahead to the Sugar Bowl, and obviously, we'll have a full preview of Texas as we draw nearer to that game. But uh, we're getting into most exciting time of the Pelton cast year. So we have our year in review pods coming up, the music and the Seattle sports year in review, but coming up next week, first off, stay tuned. The return of talking taco time. Oh my, there we go. And the discussion in the discord continues to be terrific and robust. Uh, a lot of breakdowns of the Mariners, a lot of debates about that. So if you, uh, if you want to join us, be sure to do that through the link on the post note on soniccentral.com or we've posted it on social media as well. No, it's awesome. I will say that the Discord, I would I was skeptical about a Discord, but 
the conversation has been so much better than it's been almost any other place. And, you know, seeing a bunch of people in there who are all uh, adamant about whatever sport and being very animated and uh, having a wide degree of perspectives or whatever, especially on the Mariners and the Huskies is pretty fun. And then sharing their expertise, the uh, music and TV, the uh, music and movies and TV, those channels have been fun as well. So also, uh, you if you want on there yelling at you about being on the discord during the Husky game, we did have that. So on that's that fun note, too. Thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs>